Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 18. Rebellions are built on hope. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time... We caught up with the political machinations which have been going on in Ireland ever since Lord Deputy Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford, left the kingdom to lead the response against the Covenanters. His absence, and the lack of his stabilising hand, quickly led the various factions of Irish society to move against him. Catholic, Protestant or Presbyterian, Gaelic-Irish, Old English, New English or Ulster Scots, all had their reasons for getting rid of the Lord Deputy. This mutual hatred held their coalition together until the target of that hatred was disposed of. Then the mutually exclusive aims of these groups drove them apart. Most notably, the Catholic desire for the Graces ran into new English interests in further plantation. In the absence of Strafford's replacement as Lord Deputy, the new English successfully delayed the passage of the Graces until they were perpetually put off by the outbreak of rebellion. But, as we also saw last week, the idea that the 1641 rebellion came out of nowhere and brought violence to a kingdom which hadn't seen it in 40 years, well, that's a myth. Today, we'll cover the outbreak of that rebellion and see who led it and what they wanted to achieve. I'll quote Kishlansky here because he has a wonderful turn of phrase. The Irish rebellion was born of fear but nourished by hope. Hope that Dublin was weak that the English and Scots would remain divided, that the king was willing to make concessions. Hope that the moment had finally come for Irish Catholics to take back the rule of their homeland. One of these Irish leaders we've already mentioned, Sir Phelim O'Neill. O'Neill is an especially interesting character, and his name might hint at why that is. He was an O'Neill, the family which had been such a powerful thorn in the side of the English administrators since before the Nine Years' War. His grandfather, Sir Henry Ogay O'Neill, had fought for the great O'Neill himself, 
Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone. Sir Henry was married to Hugh O'Neill's daughter, but this bond wasn't enough to keep Sir Henry on the Earl's side, and he defected alongside Turlock McHenry O'Neill of the Fuse. Both sided with the Crown in the hope of retaining their lands in the post-war settlement, and they solidified their alliance with the marriage of Sir Henry's son, Turlock Oge, to Turlock McHenry's daughter, Catherine. This union produced Baby Phelim in 1603, as well as a younger brother, Turlock Oge. Now, I know that's a lot of names, most of which I've probably mispronounced, a lot of O'Neills and Turlocks and Oges to keep track of. Well, you don't have to worry about that, because both Sir Henry Oge O'Neill and his son Turlock Oge were killed trying to suppress a 1608 rebellion. This left the five-year-old Phelim as heir to his grandfather's significant holdings. So, to recap, Phelim is the grandson of two seriously influential O'Neills and the great-grandson of the great O'Neill. But of course, five-year-olds aren't particularly talented at navigating internecine family feuds or administering larger states, and so his mother undertook to managing her son's lands and wrestling with his family to recover those pieces transferred to other loyalist O'Neills. Phelim himself was made a royal ward and raised Protestant. In 1618, he entered Lincoln's Inn in London, where he spent three years before he returned to Ireland on the eve of his majority, taking over his estates from his mother. In 1628, Phelim reconverted to his native Catholicism, but this caused no immediate change to his career path. As an Ulster notable, he served as both a Justice of the Peace and as a Member of Parliament, and he was in the 1641 Parliament as the member for Dungannon. In 1639, he was knighted, partly through the influence of the Earl of Antrim, whose family his younger brother had married into. Now, Sir Phelim was a highly connected, wealthy Gaelic Irish landowner, despite owing more than £12,000 to his creditors. He was the chief of his name, as Tim Harris describes, one of the most wealthy and powerful O'Neills, if not the most wealthy and powerful O'Neill. He was also one of the so-called deserving Irish, and fully integrated into the plantation system. In 1624, he held over 4,500 acres of land, and he was quite willing to turf off his Irish tenants, his ancestral O'Neill dependents, to bring in English colonists who were willing to pay more in rent. Sir Phelim O'Neill was not alone in the leadership of the upcoming rebellion, and in fact was quite late in joining the conspiracy, though he was well aware of their plans. Conor Maguire, second baron of Enniskillen, was one of these earlier conspirators, though he was likewise not among the first. Maguire was another of the leading figures in Ulster, attending both the 1634 and 1640-41 parliaments, and it was while attending it in February 1641 that Maguire was approached and brought into the conspiracy. Maguire wasn't included in the plot for his wealth. In fact, the prospect of his substantial debts being wiped clean appears to have been a strong motivator for joining the conspiracy. Rather, his value to the plotters was his wide-ranging familial connections, through Ulster, through his father's family, and in the Pale, through the connections of his wife. They also spread further afield, Along with his brother Rory Maguire, he dispatched a letter to Old Uncle Owen. Old Uncle Owen was, of course, Owen Roe O'Neill, the great-nephew of the great O'Neill, the Earl of Ulster. 
Uncle Owen had left Ireland early in his life, possibly during the flight of the Earls in 1607, and ever since he'd been a competent officer in the Spanish army. Owen O'Neill would be a key ally and organiser of both the 1641 rebellion as well as an earlier plot, but he won't arrive in our story until he arrives in Ireland in 1642. But when he does arrive, he'll make a splash. It's not an exact comparison, but it does help to think of him as the Irish counterpart to Alexander Leslie, a military commander with decades of experience returning home to fight for his religion and his people. But he isn't here yet. The third figure of importance early in the conspiracy was Rory O'Moore, or alternatively, Roger Moore. I'll stick with the Irish name for a few reasons, not least because if I call him Roger Moore, I can't help but picture James Bond as a sad clown. O'Moore was the mastermind of the plot. He was the one who brought in Maguire with promises of restoring his estates and claiming he had the support of his family connections throughout Leinster and Connacht. As it happens, he was overstating his position at this point, though through his marriage and those of his children, he did have serious connections throughout those provinces, and they would join the rebellion. They just didn't know it yet. O'Moore's biographer proposes that unlike Phelim O'Neill and Maguire, who were heavily in debt and sought financial benefits from the plot, O'Moore was more interested in re-establishing the prestige and the power of his family. Once he'd brought everyone together, though, O'Moore took a back seat, while the others transformed vague whisperings of dissent into a firm plan of action. And what was that plan of action? To put it simply, it was in two parts. The first would be the uprising in Ulster, with Phelim O'Neill's seizure of Charlemont Fort and others. The second would be a military coup against the seat of Irish government, Dublin Castle. This would be led by Maguire and O'Moore, The Lord's Justices and the Privy Council would be captured and the castle seized by a small force. In a swift, two-pronged strike, both Ulster and the government would be in the rebels' hands. It would be a relatively bloodless coup d'etat. The timing of these events was also crucial. O'Neill would act first, and before word could reach Dublin from Ulster, Maguire and O'Moore would seize the castle. By the time news of these acts reached England and Scotland, the winter would be setting in, and stormy weather would prevent any significant military response from the other two kingdoms. With the Dublin government captured and replaced, and the armoury within the castle in rebel hands, the rest of Ulster would be secured over the following days, with the rest of Ireland to follow over the winter. With this success, the rebels would demand toleration and various reforms from a position of unimpeachable strength. Importantly, there was not to be any kind of massacre. Those of high status were to be captured and kept as hostages. Anyone else was only to be killed if absolutely necessary. If everything went to plan, there'd be no need. That was the perfect scenario, and it's not a bad plan. But that is not what happened. Phelim O'Neill's part went off without a hitch. Dungannon in Tyrone, and then Charlemont Fort in Armagh were captured with ease. Things didn't go as well in Dublin, though, because the night before Dublin Castle was to be seized, someone talked. Someone always talks. This time, it was the brother-in-law of one of the conspirators who had been told about the plot. This man, Owen O'Connolly, went straight 
to Lord Justice Parsons on the evening of the 22nd, the night before the coup. By this point, Phelan had already set the plan in motion, taking several forts. O'Connolly warned Parsons that, quote, The Irish had prepared men in all parts of the kingdom to destroy all the English inhabitants there. At first, Parsons didn't believe the drunken Irishman who'd just turned up unannounced at a very unsociable time. But, after conferring with his more military-minded colleague Bollais, they decided to act. The next morning, as they were preparing to enact their coup, Maguire and his allies were arrested. This included the informant's brother-in-law, Hugh McMahon, which would make family dinners somewhat awkward. Not included in the roundup was O'Moore, who was apparently suspicious of O'Connolly, and after the latter had disappeared into the night, he changed his sleeping arrangements. So he was elsewhere when the soldiers arrived to take him into custody, and he managed to escape the city. O'Moore's lucky escape notwithstanding, this was a disaster. Without the decapitating strike at Dublin Castle with all that entailed, what had been intended as a swift overthrow of a weak and struggling government was now set to be yet another rebellion. This had more repercussions than you might immediately think. It changed the whole approach. It was one thing to negotiate terms as the acting government of Ireland, with the legitimacy and resources that came with that position, and safely ensconced in Dublin Castle. It was quite another to negotiate terms while rebelling against a legitimate government. The conspirators, now rebels, now had to contend with the Irish government in a military and political context. Rather than mopping up a few holdout fortresses and having a monopoly on the official correspondence with England and Scotland, their enemy maintained its leadership and countered anything the rebels dispatched across the Irish Sea. Another downside of Maguire's failed coup was that, to state the obvious, the uprising in Ulster had to carry on, rather than remaining a limited strike to support the Dublin coup. That meant the rising changed in character. The seizure of Dungannon and Charlemont had been led by the gentry and their retinues. They were disciplined, they had political objectives, and knew they were part of a larger machine. As Harris puts it, quote, Whatever the original intentions of the gentry leadership, they failed to maintain control over what quickly became a popular rebellion with a momentum of its own as the common people rose in large numbers to vent their own resentments against the Protestant planters, end quote. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. 
enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Because the rising turned into a rebellion. We have to consider multiple different and sometimes contradictory motivations for those taking part. And the motivations for the rebellion define how we describe it. Again, to quote Harris, Was it at heart a nationalist uprising? A revolt against English rule? an attempt to overthrow plantation, an ethnic conflict fueled by hatred of the English as a people, or, in essence, a religious revolt of Catholics against Protestants. To varying degrees, it was a mixture of all of the above, and yet, at the same time, never quite any of them. So, since we've already mentioned them, let's start with the leadership and what they hoped to achieve. Sir Phelim and those like him were, remember, the deserving Irish. Unlike other Gaelic and even Anglo-Irish landowners, Sir Phelim and his allies were secure in their titles. They'd been assured by their ancestors siding with the English 40 years previously, and they'd been built upon within the existing plantation system. What irked them was their lack of opportunity within this system, and a general fear that the ascendant English Parliament would reduce that opportunity even further. They wanted to be more competitive within the plantation system, in a system which heavily restricted how much land they could buy and who from. In his biography of Sir Phelim, Gerald Caseway sums up their position as so. To protect their positions and redress former grievances, O'Neill and other Catholic landholders sought ways to preserve, not overthrow, the colonial system that gave them status and influence." End quote. Throw in the significant debts that Sir Phelim and others held, with the promise that those debts would be wiped away, and you have strong motivators for the conspiracy. A document in the archives of the Earl of Cork, dated around November 1641, lists the rebels' demands as including freedom of religion, the independence of the Irish Parliament, the restoration of the plantation lands, and the staffing of Irishmen in military and administrative positions from the Lord Deputy down they actively drew on the example of Scotland, which had achieved similar results during the last few years. But of course, once the Dublin coup failed and the rebellion spread, 
the personal ambitions of the leadership had to share the stage. Of course, rebels in each region and each individual rebel balanced their own motivations, religious, economic, and political, and so it's difficult to ascribe monolithic aims to so many people. But we can see some broad trends, especially in Ulster, and early in the rebellion. We touched on the dismal economic situation in Ireland, and particularly in Ulster, last episode. Gaelic-Irish peasants were not pleased to live within a plantation system where their landlords, whether New English or otherwise, were motivated to hike their rents or evict them outright with little notice. Their competition was not for more land titles, but for tenancies. British settlers, brought in by undertakers or attracted on their own by affordable rents, were generally able and willing to pay much more than the native Irish. As we will see in the next episode, some of the first civilian targets of the rebellion were English tenants invited by Irish proprietors, including the tenants of Sir Phelim himself. These were powerful resentments which would bear brutal fruit in the coming months. Worse, even if they were able to hang on to a place to live, Irish labourers found that they were paid much less for the same work than their English, Scottish or Welsh neighbours. The economic downturn had made all of these problems even more pronounced. Add in the other forms of religious and ethnic discrimination which native Irish faced on a daily basis, and you have a powder keg. It's worth mentioning that the fears of popery in England and Scotland, which had taken on a frightening avatar in the Catholic Irish army which Wentworth had raised, well, these fears were matched in Ireland, but in the reverse. The English and Scots, now their quarrels were over and allied in a rabid anti-Catholic agenda, were going to combine their forces and invade Ireland once again, and this time massacre any Irish Catholic they found. That was the fear, at least, and indeed the leaders of the rebellion attempted to steer the violence away from Scottish plantations, in part to avoid bringing about this Anglo-Scottish alliance. Considering the rhetoric in the English Parliament, and decades of existing persecution, it isn't hard to see why these rumours took hold. It's one of the many tragedies of these events that this rebellion played a huge role in making those fears a reality, with the arrival of the Covenanter army in 1642, and the arrival of Cromwell in 1649. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. But what about that Irish army? The army of seven to 9,000 men had been intended for an invasion of Scotland, but for a whole host of reasons, that never happened. It had sat causing trouble at Carrickfergus on the coast of County Antrim on the northeastern coast of Ireland ever since. Many of these troubles were far from unique and indeed pop up whenever you have a large army garrisoned somewhere for a long period of time. Relations between a garrisoned army and local civilians can easily turn sour without careful management, and that's before you throw a range of ethnic and religious tensions into the mix. Riots erupted between the restless soldiery and disaffected locals, especially when you consider the high proportion of Scottish Presbyterians in the region and the largely Catholic makeup of the army. Locals were made to sell food and supplies to the soldiers at a fixed price, which was far lower than they could otherwise get, and sometimes only covered the merchants' costs. Local civilians rioted not just against the army, but against other sources of resentment, such as, for Presbyterians, the Church of Ireland clergy. The Irish army was a catalyst for social unrest, and something had to be done. 
But what was that something? Because no one could decide. Some wanted the army demobilised and disbanded. Fears that it could be used against Charles's enemies in England had motivated some of the greatest charges against Strafford. Those in Ulster, who had to contend with the hungry soldiers, were also in favour of getting rid of them. And of course, it was incredibly expensive to maintain, despite Charles insisting to the Lord Justices that they keep it in the field. He needed it as a counterweight to the Covenanters, as the negotiations for the Treaty of London took place. However, in May 1641, Charles agreed to disband the army, and that presented another problem. What to do with several thousand trained and now unemployed soldiers? Allowing them to go about their business was just asking for an uptick in banditry, as well as, if they entered the service of disaffected Irish power brokers, more organised unrest. Let's just say that that latter option may become relevant. So, Charles agreed to allow Spanish recruiting officers to hire a large number of these men. It would get them out of Ireland, at very little cost to the Crown, which estimated that just disbanding and paying the men would cost at least £10,000. This won support from some Irish, Scottish and English notables, especially those concerned about the cost of maintaining it, and the risk it posed to them. One advocate for sending it abroad was Sir John Clotworthy, who had aided John Pym in his attack on Strafford. The Covenanters had also been very nervous about agreeing to disband their army while the Irish army was a short sail from Dumbarton Castle. So sending the Irish army away had its advocates, but it also earned opposition from others. Sir Simon's Deuse complained that if the Irish army served in the Spanish forces, it would tip the balance of power in Europe. Now, no disrespect to the fighting prowess of the Irish soldiery, but I'm not sure their arrival would allow the Habsburgs to pacify rebellious Portugal and Catalonia, finally crush the Dutch, and bring a victorious end to the Thirty Years' War, which is what Deuse claimed would happen. But arguments against allowing the Irish army to serve Catholic European powers gained a vast amount of support when Charles announced in July that he would try and restore his nephew, Elector Louis Frederick, to the Palatine. It would be the height of folly, voices loudly declared in all three kingdoms, to allow such a resource to be given to future enemies. Aside from acting as yet another source of disagreement between various factions in the Stuart kingdoms, the Irish army played its own role in the 1641 rebellion. As Percival Maxwell states, echoing the words of contemporaries, important though the existence of the new army was in these respects, its continuing presence in Ireland played an even more significant role in contributing to the outbreak of the rebellion. Interestingly, and from the point of view of the Dublin authorities, suspiciously, many Catholic Irish opposed the export of the army. Lord Justice Parsons was suspicious of the concerted attempt by many Catholics in the Irish Parliament to block the departure of the soldiers to Spain. Could there be a political motivation behind this, aside from the justifications they used? These concerns were shared by the Earl of Ormond, who had been made the commander of the Irish army, and who demanded that his officers cease their correspondence with local Catholic leaders in September. The Irish army was the cause of huge strife between the parliaments of the three kingdoms, between Charles and his parliaments, and between Charles and his foreign commitments. 
as just one example of the cross-purposes and breakdown of trust within the Three Kingdoms, after Charles agreed to allow Spanish recruitment, the English Parliament voted to block Spanish vessels from sailing to Ireland to collect them. The Venetian ambassador, looking on, remarked that how little trust can be placed in the promises of this government. Percival Maxwell sums up the whole palaver as so. The Commons had placed their concern about the Protestant position on the continent above consideration of security at home and the international reputation of their king, end quote. It's a huge, tangled web of diplomatic embarrassment, political manoeuvring, familial responsibilities, and continental positioning. But the important takeaway from this is that the vast majority of the Irish army remained in Ireland at the time of the rebellion, though most had been disarmed. Remember that intelligence speech is coming up on the 24th of April, and I'll be talking about Charles II's incredible escape from the Battle of Worcester. I'll be joined by more than 40 other brilliant podcasters, and you can have access to all of them by going to intelligencespeechconference.com shop. The early bird special has now ran out, and tickets are now $30. It's still a bargain, and if you use the code PAX at checkout, you'll get 10% off anyway. That again is intelligencespeechconference.com shop, and use code PAX for 10% off. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to my royal favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, Bruce Simmons has been promoted to the rank of Marquess, and Linda Alton is now the Countess of Coventry. You can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free feed, and higher ranks come with more bonuses. Thank you, again, to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, and, as always, to you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.